Heavenly Father, as we've already sung, I am weak, but thou art strong. Where can we go except to thee, Heavenly Father, in a world that's broken by sin, in a world where we are often disappointed, in a world where it seems that evil is getting ahead and good is falling farther behind. We trust, Heavenly Father, that thou dost have a hand in all of this, a plan in all of this, that nothing is out of order in thy universe, but all things are proceeding according to thy will. Though we believe this in our heads, perhaps, dear Lord, our hearts are fickle and we doubt thee from time to time. So strengthen our faith, Heavenly Father, as thy disciples prayed unto thee. Strengthen our faith. Grant us at least that little faith like a grain of mustard seed that would grow and flourish, that we would be able to do perhaps great things for thee. For it is not out of human strength or wisdom that thy kingdom will advance, but in weakness, in trembling, in fear, but relying on the hand of Almighty God to prosper the work. And so, Heavenly Father, now we turn to thee, asking for thy presence to be with us this afternoon hour. Amen. Brother Doug referenced this chapter in this morning's service and it opened now to me as I open the scripture. Let's read together from the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel, from the gospel according to Luke, chapter nine. Let's start with the 23rd verse. Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And it came to pass about in eight days after these sayings, sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter... And they that were with him were heavy with sleep. 
And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. Well, he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus, answering, said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. I've read until the 45th verse. I think certain truths of Scripture are so well known so often heard that they have lost some of their meaning. We we are familiar with certain turns of phrases that are in Scripture, especially the King James Version, which has such a rich and storied history connected to the English language. I mean, people quote from the King James all the time and don't realize they're quoting it. I just heard, I think it was a little ditty in some children's movie and they were talking about sowing and reaping. I'm thinking that's such a King James kind of a a phrase. People don't even know where it's from anymore. It's just a, a a common saying. Christ's words, take up your cross. I think is another one that we don't maybe think a whole lot about. What does that mean? Well, it's something vaguely connected to Christianity. Some people have taken it literally and wear a cross around their neck, though I don't think that's what the Lord intended at all. In fact, our Zion's Harp hymn says, it's not worn upon the breast, it's born within, which is exactly true. But think of what Christ was saying. Take up your cross daily. 
To take up your cross was a one-time event. The cross never argued with the one who was nailed there. It simply killed him. He hung there till he died. And it was not born daily, it was born only once, and that on a one-way journey to the place of crucifixion. Yet Christ says to those disciples who are following him, take up your cross daily. Put yourself in the place of those who listen to him speak. What would you have made of that phrase? What would you have thought that Christ meant at the time? You know, other times when he said confusing things, the people that were standing around said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? This doesn't make any sense. We're out of here. And they left. Things were fine when he was giving away free food or healing those that were injured. But I mean, hey, once you've seen one demoniac cast out or a lame person healed, how many more times do you have to see it? The novelty wears off. Not so with the cross. The cross taken daily, it's a difficult thing to take up the cross daily. We have a choice, it seems. Take up that cross once, die to sin once. I'm saved and now I go on my way. But that's not what Christ says. That cross needs to be borne daily. Again, the Zion's Harp does an excellent job of explaining what the cross means. And it takes the cross as an allegory. The, the long beam, it says, is God's will in heaven. And crosswise across it, our own will in opposition. And there we understand, as the hymn instructs us, why the cross is difficult. Because our will dies so that his can live through us. You may not have thought about this before, but do you realize that in all of creation, there is only one creature that can say no to God, and it sticks, that's man. No other creature made in the image of God. God is the ultimate autonomous one. No one can stop his hand or stay his will. We read that in scripture. Yet in his providence, in his power, and in his authority, he has decreed that we have a will and that our will counts. That we can exercise our will and he will honor our will. Now that does not mean that we can choose to save ourselves, no. Salvation is always from God. It was a pursuing before we even knew he was there. He was already looking for us and searching for us. No man can claim the yes of the gospel as his own. It was God already working ahead of time. But the no, the no to the gospel is fully ours. Fully ours. Our friends who subscribe to some of those Tenants of Reformed theology get it wrong. They don't seem to understand this. But God has said it plainly in his word. When Christ said, whosoever will, 
He forever removed religion from the realm of compulsion. He made it a voluntary thing. Whosoever will, if you want to, it is there. And now the choice is ours. The no, as I said before, can be fully ours. The yes, he already begins to work. I heard it described this way by one of my favorite authors. He said, salvation is from our side a choice, but from God's side is a divine conquest. And I really like the way that it was put that way. That really gives you the, the picture of how God was already moving and working things to win us unto himself. A military conquest, a taking of an objective. Yet, Christ himself says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. So what will you do? We all intellectually know that our lives will end one day. As we get older, that prospect becomes more real. We see others around us aging and passing on. While we're young, it seems still a far way away. But somewhere around middle life, when you realize that from here on, things are gonna be going downhill, not uphill anymore, you start to realize too that one day, your day is coming as well. And the prospect of holding on to life, especially for those that are aged and in difficult situations, become less appealing. So we know we cannot keep our life. We know we cannot hold on to it forever. Some people do some pretty radical things to try to prolong life. Science has made great strides. But still, eternal life is beyond their grasp. There's some that think maybe one day we will be able to download our consciousness onto a computer and in that way live forever. Yet the question will be, is that AI-generated consciousness really you? Or does it just seem to be you? These are thorny, mind-bending kind of questions. But I firmly believe that before those things can really become a reality, the Lord will return and set things right. The last time someone tried to make a tower whose top reached unto heaven, the Lord cut it short. And one day all will have to meet the author of life and answer for what they have done with that precious gift. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? Some very rich men took a journey in a submarine not that long ago to try to go see that wealth, of, uh, uh, to go see that, that sunken treasure, I should say, that, uh, that wreck, to be counted among those who had actually gone down and witnessed 
that, that, where that famous cruise ship lies, the Titanic, except they never made it. 500 meters short of their goal, their little tin can of a craft collapsed under the fantastic weight of the seas and their lives were snuffed out before they even had a realization of what was going on. I'm glad they didn't suffer. To be stuck down there would be an awful prospect to think. But on the other hand, if they had known, what would they have given? I'm sure any one of those passengers on board that small craft would have gladly given everything that they possessed, billions perhaps, for a little more time. And yet, they simply got to fast forward to the end. We all will die. One day, unless the Lord returns before then, But what would you give in exchange for your soul? If hell is really as awful as scripture paints it, what would you pay to avoid it? If heaven is really as wonderful as scripture paints it, what would you give to attain it? This world really doesn't have all that much to offer. Look at the silly things the billionaires do. Why would they even go down into a small, with a small submarine like that to go look at a rusted up hunk of metal? Send a camera. What's the big deal? But one more thing, one more, something, something better than the last thrill, something more exciting than what I've experienced before. That will make it all worthwhile. My friends, that's like drinking seawater. It'll only make you thirstier. There are those that have died on, on boats out in the open sea just from drinking the seawater eventually. In an effort to quench the thirst, they simply hasten their demise. And that can be said of these men as well, that ended up perishing in this way. But there is coming a day of reckoning. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. You know, they say that the number one fear is the fear of public speaking. People have asked me before about speaking from the pulpit if it's something that makes you nervous and it's not the speaking that makes me nervous it's what I say because what I say will be held against me especially because I've taught it to others that's the thing that scares me that's the thing that worries me when I realize that I'm, a, I'm speaking now on behalf of God and I'm accountable for everything that I'm saying You know, people are afraid of public speaking, I think, just because they don't want to appear foolish. There's certainly no physical danger involved in it. 
It's not like anyone's going to harm you if you do a bad job public speaking. Most of the time. So people don't want to be embarrassed. But this, this is the ultimate embarrassment. Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. The one who would accept anyone while he was here. No sinner was too vile for the attention of Christ. Even the one hanging on the cross next to him that had previously reviled him when he saw this man and how he behaved. Talk about an 11th hour conversion. I don't know that it gets any closer to that. Finally seeing that. Can you imagine that? In the midst of that storm of pain that Christ was experiencing, hanging on that cross, being reviled by those that should have been adoring him, deserted by his friends that he had poured his life into for three years. In the middle of that maelstorm, he hears a, a, a cracked, parched cry, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in the middle of that, he hears that cry, and he responds. What a savior. Not even ashamed of the one who had just previously been making fun of him, saying, if, you can, if you're the son of man, save us and yourself. Take us down from the cross. And now, in repentance, he turned, and the Lord heard. Can you imagine the wrath of the lamb? We like the idea of the lamb, right? The lamb of God that's come into the world, John said. That, I don't know how many of you have seen a little lamb up close. We had the opportunity at Brother Chris and Sister Jenny Ritzman's place to go see newly born lambs, little wobbly, cute little things, fuzzy little things, running here, there, and everywhere, bleeding after their mother. I mean, I don't know other, any other animal of that size that's so harmless. No farm wife ever said, look out, Junior is among the sheep. He's going to get trampled. Sheep don't do anything. Cows, maybe. Pigs definitely look out. They can be dangerous. More people are killed from pigs every year than sharks. But sheep, sheep are harmless. But we read in the last chapter of the Bible about the wrath of the lamb. I can't even picture that. An angry lamb? But the figure is so perfect. The lamb of God who took away the sin from those who will, who will spurn that offer. His wrath has no comparison. The people on the earth said, save us from the wrath of the lamb. Rocks, mountains fall on us. Crush us that we won't have to see him. Wow. You don't want to face the lamb on that day without the benefit of his atoning blood. The lamb that was wounded as if it were unto death. Just recently, we, the children watched a uh, um, a dramatization of, of the Exodus. And when it came to the part about the plague that came down to steal the lives of the firstborn in Egypt, 
and how that plague went along, and when it saw the blood, it would pass over that house and keep moving. But where there was no blood, it freely entered and stole the breath of the firstborn. And the children, it wasn't lost on them. It was a chilling idea. Everybody likes the baby in the manger. Few like the man who hung on the cross. And none who are not ready for him will want to see the return of the Son of God in power with the holy angels. Of course, this all seems foolish. It all seems so unreal. I think you're confusing two things. There are many things in Scripture I cannot picture or imagine, but I still believe. One of them is the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. That whole thing seems unreal. Many of the miracles, when I think back about them walking on water, what must that have been like? I I have trouble imagining that. But that's only a fault of imagination, not faith. You see, where imagination and faith are similar is they are both uh, dealing with things that they have not seen. That's it. Imagination has not seen something, but it can extrapolate from things that it has seen to that thing it has not seen. The problem is if you haven't seen anything like it before, it's pretty hard to imagine. But faith is a little bit different. Faith is also rooted in the things that are unseen. Why is that? Well, faith is no longer faith once you see. And it pleases God that we believe him for the word's sake, for the truth's sake, and for his love. And if he were to reveal himself, there would be no opportunity for faith. Our will would have been abrogated. It would have been defiled. We would not be able to choose to love him for who he is. We would be forced to recognize him for how great he is. And he is a God of love. He is love itself. So things he keeps from us, but he gives us enough proof from Scripture that to extrapolate not our imagination, but our faith becomes not not such a great thing. You see, there's other areas. I mentioned this before, I think, from this pulpit, that there are problems where my, my imagination breaks down. One is when you talk about the size of the universe and the distances involved. I hear the numbers and they mean nothing to me. In fact, I have no frame of reference even to fully understand them. My, my own experience with the, our own solar system, which is perhaps the smallest increment in terms of cosmic measurement, is still too vast for my mind to comprehend. But faith tells me that the one who created all of these things is my loving Father in heaven, and that I can believe. That does not seem too great a stretch for me. And when I step back from that and think about those two things, I think this doesn't logically make sense, and it doesn't, but it sure is spiritually satisfying to know that the God who made all these things is indeed my Father in heaven. Unless you become as little children, 
you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that offend you? Is that something that bothers you? If you're trying to find it on your own, it will. Men have died looking for answers and still not found them. But those who are simple enough to simply accept those things at face value and say, yes, I can believe, find rest and peace. This Mount of Transfiguration, and I intended to spend longer on this, not at the beginning, but perhaps there was a reason for that as well. This opportunity that they had to see, the Mount of Transfiguration. What an opportunity. And yet they fell asleep while Christ was praying. And you know what? Christ didn't chastise them for it. You see how gentle he was? He didn't grab them by the neck and say, how could you be asleep at a time like this? Look what you're missing. No. He simply let them wake, as it were, on their own and see this amazing sight. Elijah, Moses, two of the greatest personalities of the Old Testament, prophetic voices speaking there with their master. I wonder what that would have been like to see that, to experience that. It, we know a little of what they were talking. They were talking about his decease that he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem, his death. But the disciples didn't quite understand it. But the most remarkable thing came when that cloud descended. That cloud was there for their protection because no man can see the face of the Father and live. So God chose to hide himself from their eyes, but speak so that they could hear. This is my beloved son. Hear him. He didn't speak with them as he spoke with Moses in the mountain for 40 days. He simply said, listen to my son. That's important instruction for all of us. If we ever get too wise in our own conceit, too knowledgeable, too proud of our accomplishments, listen to Jesus, listen to what he says. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And it says, and they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. In another place, it says that Jesus told them not to tell anybody. What a temptation it must have been, especially when they were debating about who was going to be greatest. You know, to be able to pull out something like that out of your back pocket and say, yeah, did you see Moses and Elijah? How about that, hot shot? You think you're going to be the greatest? But that's not the way that things work in the kingdom of God. No, to be truly great, Jesus told us, we must become the servant. To be really useful in God's hands, we must become broken. For one who is proud and thinks he's not that bad, there's still a long way to go before you're ready for the grace of God because he will only give that grace to the humble. Jesus didn't stay up on that mountaintop with his disciples. 
Peter would have liked to. He said, let's, let's build some little shelters here for us and let's stay here for a while. You know, camp's coming up and I remember a friend of mine once said, you know, it's a good thing camp's a week. A week of camp is a foretaste of heaven. I think if we had two weeks, we'd probably have a split. <laughs> and he was talking facetiously. But wouldn't that be human nature? <laughs> How human nature gets into things and, and if we're not careful, it can easily take even things with good motives and twist them. I'm not saying there's any truth to that. It was just idle chatter. He'd be shocked, I think, if I told him that I mentioned it from the pulpit. But the point is this. We have to be so careful because the real enemy, the one who will give us the most trouble, it's like our old elder, Brother Bob Freund, used to say, when I look in the mirror every morning to shave this old man, I see the face of the one who's going to give me the most trouble that day. And he's right. That's why we need to take up the cross daily, every day. It's hard. The Lord lays sometimes things on us that are difficult to carry. And I know there are many here that have heavy burdens. And perhaps I understand a little bit better some of the difficulties and weights that you go through. Not saying that I do, but in my own difficulties lately, I, I certainly see it a little bit more clearly. But I do look forward to that day when the Lord will make everything right. You see, I heard it described this way. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said this. Heaven and hell work backwards into our life. From eternity back into time. So that for those that are destined for hell, they taste hell already here because of their choices. And for those that are destined for heaven, they taste heaven here already through their choices. And one day, everything that is bad, everything that is evil, will be untrue. That was actually the words of Tolkien. I looked it up. It wasn't C.S. Lewis. One day, everything bad will be untrue. He will set it all right again. And the, the perversions and the pain, the difficulty, the disappointments, the betrayals, the times that we have felt most low, we will realize, as it says in the hymn, remembered there will only bring a smile. I trust that day is coming for me too. Now one day I will see, maybe not here. God doesn't promise that. <clears throat> We're not guaranteed that we understand it here. It says in Hebrews, some didn't accept deliverance and they, they some were delivered, but some were not. And it's only going to be in glory that the full picture will be revealed. Then we will be transfigured. And those perfect bodies that will be given, they will be everything right. You think as you get older, I've noticed uh, even lately, this past year, my eyes are getting a little bit, I have to hold things a little bit farther away to bring them into focus, and I know glasses are probably coming eventually. But one day I will be given a new body, 
still a material body, still a body like Christ's glorified body, he says, but capable of so much more. He was able to walk through walls, be here or there. I don't understand that. And really, I don't need to. All I have to know is it's better than this one. One day, one day it will all be right. But for some, it will be too late. For my friends outside of Christ, still don't know him yet. Take up your cross. Realize that there's nothing in this world that's worth trading that for. I'm not going to promise you a life of ease. Christ didn't have that. His disciples certainly didn't have that. But to have that assurance, like the Apostle Peter had, what we heard this morning, to have that clarity of vision, that that kind of faith that was so firmly rooted in the next life that this life couldn't touch it, I hope to have that and not be so tossed about. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said and may he bless his word to our hearts. Would our brother please select a concluding hymn. The very thing that is so difficult that pains us here as we struggle with it, that makes us look for easier ways we will find one day in glory that the very act of fighting that carnal nature, of nailing that old man to the cross, was exactly what worked for us. I think, uh, I forget which apostle it was that said, but the, the, the weight in glo- of glory. Now, if you knew you could make that kind of an investment, that would have an eternal return. Wouldn't a little bit of difficulty here be worthwhile? It would, but many refuse it anyway. The masses go in at the wide gate and follow the broad way. Few choose the straight gate and the narrow path. Be among those few that choose life. One day, nothing else will matter. Here, things are given importance and significance, but one day, the only thing that will matter was which way we chose. May the Lord grant us wisdom and grace to choose. Well, it is still the time of grace because we don't know what tomorrow holds, for it's not promised to any of us. For those men that entered that little craft. Part of the saddest thing was the the father and son that went down together. This is supposed to be some Father's Day treat. The son didn't want to go, the 19-year-old son, but he was talked into it. What a mistake. Choose wisely. Choose life. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. And may he dismiss us with his blessing. Amen.